Good morning, and welcome to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 16th, 2014. We've got a great lineup for today's show with Brian Argro joining us from the newly founded Unmanned Aircraft Systems and Severe Storms Research Group. Then we'll have a look back at the work of Theo Colborn, founder of the Endocrine Disruptor Exchange, who passed away on Sunday at the age of 87. But first, a look at some recent headlines in science. Extinction is forever, as the saying goes, and as it has been happening forever, over 99% of all species that ever lived are now extinct. But this natural process is now happening much faster than in the past. The stepped-up rate is widely believed to be due to human impacts, but not much data has been available to test this hypothesis until recently. A group of scientists in the UK used historical records to measure the rate of extinction of bees and flower-visiting wasps in Britain from the mid-19th century to the present. These pollinators contribute to both biodiversity and agricultural yield, but habitat destruction, loss of flowering species, and increased use of pesticides are causing declines in their abundance and diversity. The most rapid phase of their extinction has been linked to agricultural policy and practices beginning in the 1920s and right before the agricultural intensification prompted by the Second World War. That change in farming practice is blamed for the large losses in biodiversity in Britain. An apparent slowdown in the extinction rate from the 1960s onward may be due to the earlier loss of the most sensitive species, or conservation programs may be getting better. But we will have to wait for more studies to know for sure. This work was reported in the journal Science last week. We know that the atmosphere on Mars is much thinner than what we have here on Earth. CU Boulder scientist Bruce Joukowsky says that NASA's newest Mars orbiter is now giving powerful evidence of how the red planet has ended up with such a wispy air. And he says one culprit is solar winds. The orbiter providing this new information is called MAVEN, which is short for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution, MAVEN mission. MAVEN reached Mars in September. It began sending data back to Earth in November, including readings where MAVEN actually dips into the uppermost part of the Martian atmosphere to provide highly detailed readings about its composition. The MAVEN data indicates that solar storms, high-energy winds from the sun, scour and sometimes even pierce through the red planet's upper atmosphere. In this way, sometimes solar storms cause gases in the Martian lower atmosphere to be flung high up and then lost in space. But there is more to figure out about the mystery of the Martian air. For instance, the Earth is closer to the sun than Mars and closer to the powerful winds. Yet Earth has a denser atmosphere than Mars. Then there's Venus, which is even closer to the sun, and thus closer to the solar storms. Yet it has an even thicker atmosphere. We'll look at what explains these differences in a future How on Earth. And for fans of science presentations, mark your calendar for tonight, when Denver's Café Sci will bring you the topic Ebola 101, The Facts Behind the Fears. Speaking about Ebola tonight will be Connie Saver-Price, 
Price is Chief of Infectious Disease at Denver Health and a professor of the CU School of Medicine. She also chairs the Ebola Planning Task for Denver Health. Tonight's talk about Ebola is free. It will begin at 6.30 p.m. at Brooklands near Lodo, Denver. Seating is limited, so it might be wise to arrive early. are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger, and I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Argro, co-director of the Unmanned Aircraft Systems and Severe Storm Research Group. Welcome, Brian. Good morning. Come a little closer there. This group, as I understand, formed out of a research collaboration between the University of Colorado Boulder and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Brian, what brought these two groups together, and what is each bringing to the table? Well, we first started collaborating back in about 2006 um, when uh, our colleague, our now colleague, Adam Houston, came to uh, uh, to Boulder, uh, interested to use unmanned aircraft systems to uh, study severe weather or severe storms. And uh, the collaboration grew from there, and uh, we, you know, we continue to work together. So what are the goals now of this research group? Well, uh, there's expertise in severe weather or severe storm research uh, kind of scattered around the, the country. And uh, back in, in 2010, there was a big project called Vortex 2. And it was, that stood for verification for the origins of rotation and tornadoes experiment. Um, and after that, we realized that, uh, you know, it was a good time to, to bring together uh, the people, uh, many of the people who had participated in that effort uh, that included uh, uh, individuals, universities, um, and government agencies. And so what we're doing now is, is trying to create a forum in which we can strengthen uh, our old collaborations and create new ones. So these aircrafts, why use them instead of the trucks and people like we've seen in the movie Twister driving out there? R- right. Um, well, there are certain parts of the storm where... Uh, there are some critical measurements that scientists want to want to make, and you have to get there. And so you launch a balloon from the ground uh, in a downdraft, and it doesn't go up. It goes sideways. Uh, you can't really fly uh, manned aircraft in, in those areas because of the risk, uh, again, of it's a, it's, a, it's a violent storm oftentimes and uh, downdrafts and so forth. And, you know, driving vehicles beneath, uh, you, you only have so much that you can do, and uh, you can sense things remotely using radar and things like that. But the UAS, take you know, when you absolutely, positively have to get there and uh, you can't, then the UAS can, can get there for you. And UAS, that's Unmanned Aircraft System. That is an unmanned aircraft system, uh, otherwise known as a drone. Excellent. So is there still an element of excitement, though? Like when these storms start forming, you've got to chase it down, find where it's happening? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's, there's exhilaration just from being a witness to, you know, Mother Nature in, in her rawest form, you know, with some of these violent storms. 
there's also an exhilaration for uh, watching your, your creation you know, that your team has worked on uh, and designed to watch it uh, in action and, and see it work. How quickly can these be deployed? Does it have to be planned way far in advance or can it be, oh, there's a storm coming, let's send the planes out? Uh, it's, it's amazing. The, the meteorologists can generally, uh, a couple of days ahead of time, know a general area where uh, severe weather will, will happen. And then the day of the storms, uh, they are using the simulations and, and so forth to really uh, pinpoint to about the size of a, maybe a couple of counties uh, oftentimes. And so uh, after the a morning session, we will stage. So we'll go out and uh, park our vehicles and, and basically wait for the storms to percolate, you know, usually in the afternoon. And then there's uh, once they start to appear on radar, we, we target them and we uh, position ourselves so that we can launch the aircraft from a safe position. And what kind of information are these crafts collecting? Uh, the, the primary, uh, to date, the primary uh, data is pressure, temperature, and humidity. Uh, more recently, we've developed a capability to also measure wind, which you might think uh, you know, would, would be something simple to do. But when your aircraft is actually in the wind, and you're trying to de determine what the uh, velocity of the wind is with respect to the ground, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a more difficult problem than, than may, it may first appear. And what part of the storms are they getting into, what, and what altitude are they flying at? Well, uh, the, the target area for the, the supercells, these are the, the storms that we actually primarily target. Uh, supercells are, 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 are characterized by the fact that the entire storm spins. And so they are the, uh, uh, they, they form the strongest, uh, most violent tornadoes. Uh, and there's a part of the, uh, the storm. Uh, one of the things that's amazing is, is that these storms have a certain structure, and you see it repeated, you know, every time. And there's an area called the rear flank downdraft that, that's on the, usually on the rear southwest corner of the storm. Uh, the, the meteorologists believe that there, uh, that what happens in that, that downdraft may be uh, associated directly with the formation of, of, tor of a tornado. And so uh, what we're doing is trying to get into that area, make the pressure, temperature, humidity measurements, and that may lead in the future to where if you can determine what those conditions are, you can say, yes, this storm will form a tornado, or no, this storm, which the vast majority of storms don't. And uh, you may be able to distinguish those that do from those that don't and give better warnings and, uh, and many less false warnings. So since they're flying into these somewhat severe weather uh, environments, do they need some sort of extra armor or shielding? Do they get hit by lightning? Well, uh, starting with the lightning, uh, we have not had a lightning strike yet, um, but there is that risk. There's always that risk, uh, you know, uh, to the to the aircraft, and and we have to take precautions on the ground also uh, to make sure we're not struck by uh, by lightning. There are parts of the storm in which, if we flew, the airplane would probably be destroyed. And uh, but again, the structure of these storms uh, would be destroyed by hail primarily. The structure of these storms is very repeatable. When we look, when we see the radar image, and our meteorologist colleagues are using their eyeballs. We, we know where we can fly and where we can't. And um, we can fly in, in rain, um, but uh, hail is a, is a, is a whole other ballgame. So we avoid the hail. So tell me a little bit about the progress the group has made with getting authorization from the Federal Aviation Administration. I know that in some places they're not allowing drones or 
or these other crafts to fly. To date, that's been one of our biggest achievements uh, to work with the FAA to get these permissions. Um, we currently, for our primary uh, storm um, penetrating aircraft called the Tempest, uh, Tempest UAS, uh, we currently have a an authorization from the FAA that covers about an area about the size of the state of Iowa uh, that's in northeast uh, Colorado, uh, northwest Kansas, uh, southwest, southwest Nebraska, and southeast uh, Wyoming. And uh, so what we do is um, we notify the air traffic controllers, um, you know, when we are about to fly. They, they are familiar with us, and so they know, you know, where, we're, where we are and so forth. And we also issue what are called notices to airmen so that uh, uh, people who are flying um, uh, aircraft know where we're operating. And, and right now, the ceiling of our operation is about 2,500 feet. So we're below uh, most, well, we're certainly below controlled uh, airspace. And, uh, and it's our job also to, from the ground, we have to make sure that we uh, avoid any conflict with aircraft. And so we have observers who are, have their eyeballs on the aircraft at all times, and they're scanning the airspace to make sure that there are no other aircraft around. So as this group is coming together, what are some of the things you're most excited about for the future? Well, I'm excited that uh, many of our, our, our colleagues that were part of Vortex, uh, Vortex 2, back in, in 2009, 2010, are, are coming together to join this, uh, this group so that we can continue to work together to make plans for the future and uh, to hopefully get funding uh, to get back out into the field to uh, continue our research uh, that ultimately uh, our ultimate goal is to is to help save lives and that is to increase the tornado warning time from the current approximately 13 minutes to something significantly more and so uh, and to reduce the false alarm rate the false warning rate. Well, thank you, Brian, for joining us today. Well, thank you. That was Brian Argro of the newly formed Unmanned Aircraft Systems and Severe Storm Research Group here at the University of Colorado. Betty came by on the way. Said she had a word to say About things today And fallen leaves Said she hadn't heard the news Hadn't had the time to choose Way to lose You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Yesterday, the science community lost a great mind and activist. Dr. Theo Colborn was the founder of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, or TEDx, a nonprofit organization which aims to collect and disseminate scientific evidence on the environmental and health effects caused by exposure to low levels of industrial chemicals. Paonia Public Radio, KVNF, located in Paonia, Colorado, where TEDx was headquartered, spoke with Theo in 2011 about some of her work on fracking fluids. Based on the research you've done, 
why fracking fluids and, and chemicals used in hydraulic fracturing pose a risk to public health? We know from the, the list that we have on our website uh, that approximately 47% of those chemicals that we have looked at so far are endocrine disruptors in one way or another. They interfere with development, prenatal exposure, postnatal development, reproductive uh, the system, the cardiovascular system, the overarching effect of all these systems that the endocrine system controls. Then if you break that out, and that's, this has been one of my concerns, is the air pollution, uh, about 60% of the chemicals that we've been looking at so far interfere with the endocrine system in one way or another. And these are the chemicals that are very effective at very low doses. And most of the chemicals that we're looking at now that are on these lists, the chemicals that are in use in other industries as well, are based on standards that were done using old toxicological procedures that only looked at what the chemicals did to a 70-kilogram male adult. They did not go back and look at what can happen when something gets into a woman, she shares it with her baby in the womb, and that baby that develops in her womb is exposed to those chemicals in her body from the moment fertilization takes place. That's where all this new research has been done with endocrine disruption. And this is what we're finding is so many of these chemicals fall under that realm, this whole new approach of how we look at chemicals. Your organization is opposed to the use of chemicals like this in really in, in the environment and in the industry, right? We would like to see them find alternatives. You, you know me, I give an example. We all fly in airplanes. We could not be flying in the airplanes and doing the things we're doing today without chemicals that are used in hydraulic fluids. Without the hydraulic fluid systems that we use in airplanes today, we would not be traveling. We, won't, we would not be doing what we're doing. But some of those chemicals are extremely dangerous. If you talk to aeronautical engineers, the first thing they are trained is to stay away from those hydraulic fluids. You do not get near them. They're handled. They're taught how to handle these things very carefully. They're put into confined equipment that's put into the airplanes so that none of that ever seeps into the cabin or into the pilot's cabin. The industry is using those kinds of chemicals today in order to drill underground. They need things to reduce friction, anything to make their equipment more efficient, anything that makes things slippery. Try to think of it that way. Those same kind of chemicals that are so carefully controlled, used in our airplanes, are not being carefully controlled when they're released into the environment in millions of gallons of fluid underground. The Environmental Protection Agency recently released a report that's caused a lot of waves, um, especially among the natural gas industry and, and people who are interested in it, because it seems that for the first time they have found a link between chemicals used in hydraulic fracturing and groundwater contamination. They have found some of the um, same compounds in some aquifers and so forth, and that was in, in Wyoming. So how does that report factor into the fracking debate? I think it's going to make people think more carefully about where you frack, where you start breaking ground, and where you start injecting chemicals like this underground. I hope that it raises consciousness 
of those who are drilling, those who have the power to make some decisions about what is right and what is wrong and actually call for more oversight. I think it's going to be possible. Uh, Remember, most of the fracking that was done early on was done in very rural areas, away from where people lived. And so if a rancher had a couple thousand acres and somebody came in and said, can we put a pay it out on your property? Well, certainly, I think I would have done it too. I would have said, sure, go way out on that back 40 and do what you want to do. There are a lot of ranchers out there now that will tell you they wish they had never done that. And, but it takes years. Things don't move underground very rapidly. We know underground water may move an inch a year. It flows compacted, compressed underground, but it does eventually flow like a very slow river or toothpaste coming out of a tube. But if it should come by where you have dropped the well from your home to get your drinking water and just happen to hit that at the day that a slug from a drill or from a fracking event passes through, that could come right into your home. And in many instances, you may not even know it because the most dangerous chemicals, the ones that they're dealing with, are highly water miscible. They're highly soluble in water and very difficult to detect. Many of them are odorless, they're tasteless. And the amazing thing is that many of them will evaporate at room temperature. So you can see how easy it could be to get one of these kinds of chemicals in and under the ground. And up, and these are the kind of chemicals, by the way, right now, that there are no really good water quality testing protocols available to detect them. So these chemicals are being used without the technology to be able to detect for them. I don't know of anyone who's putting any money into trying to find the assay that could pick up these are called esters, aldides, ethers, alcohols. How will you figure in? to this process locally? Uh, We will just provide technical information. If people want it, we will give it to them. People know my position. County commissioners know my position. Uh, So does the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission. But if we can provide them technical information, we will provide that, and we will provide it for any individual who wants some kind of advice. I do want to convince people that You can be very effective 3,000 miles away from Washington, D.C., if you take the time to pay attention and watch what's going on every day. But we must think locally. In this case, people must get up, and they must attend meetings, and they must address their county commissioners and the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission, and if so, even ask the governor. Let the governor know how you feel. That was Dr. Theo Colborn, founder of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, who just passed away this Sunday at the age of 87. This interview was recorded by Paonia Public Radio in 2011. An extended interview will be available on our blog later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and myself. This week's show was also produced and engineered by me. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, and special thanks to our colleagues at Paonia Public Radio. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nick Drake. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, an extended interview with Theo Colborn, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-991. One for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. <laughs>